Beloved Church of God, beginning our service before the Lord, let us stand and affirm the promise that is related to the door of our hope. Let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this once again privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. And so allow your inheritance in the name of the covenant of blood to be lifted to heights higher than us and to break all evil and sin that binds us. May in this service be cursed as before all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies, all forms of fears, depression, destruction, ignorance, selfishness. All of this, let it depart from the tents of your holy people and stand, Lord, on the place of your rest, you and the ark of your greatness, and may your saints be clothed in your salvation, and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, and allow us to find your holy countenance. I present this service into your divine arms. Guide it with your uplifted hand. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated. Peace to the children of God, to those that are found in Christ Jesus, those who have prepared their heart to hear the word of the Lord, who lives according to the words of our Lord, that in these days have become now more than ever authoritative, defining our present and our future. And the great significance is the value for us of the person of the man of God. What our personal relationship toward him is. Do we unite our goals with him, our desires, our actions? Which for us is important in this life. What we prefer to think over and our presence in this place tells us of the decision that we have made. We have answered to the sound of the silver trumpet that trumps according to the words of God. And God has gone before us in the pillar of the cloud, illuminating the way which has given us the ability to be clothed into our inheritance. All that he has contained in his word God is vigilant over this word and will bring it to fulfillment. Those who are vigilant with him, who revere before him. That which God tells us must go through someone's lips. And these must go through our lips. And thus we receive the renewed mind which Solomon 
had sought after. And he asked for this based on what his father David had taught him. We need this wisdom that comes from above in order to govern all the peoples that live within us. Have mercy over some. To fight with others. To overthrow some. And for all this, we need wisdom from above. We need to try to use all of our energy to fulfill the Word of God. We need wisdom of God, immersing ourselves into the statutes and commitments that the Lord has given us. Jesus himself had once spoken the words, Matthew 12, 41-42. He said this to the Pharisees about giving a sign. He says, another sign will not be given you except for the prophet. Jonah, just like Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man must be in the heart of the earth. This is Matthew 12, 41-42. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. This is a very short book, only about four chapters long. But it is a very broad thought. And the word of Jodah Theologists talk about him possibly being the son of the widow of Sidon, and there is a word to him. In this city, there were about 120,000 people who could not distinguish their right from their left hand. To go, Jesus goes into the boat and goes to Tarshish. You know this story. What had happened with him and his sermon? And 40 more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. This is the sermon that was preached. And these people had repented. And the words of Jesus. Where we are found here is greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She came to Jerusalem. She heard the news about this person. And she gathered lots of questions that she asked this person. She was astonished by all that she had heard, what she had seen. And all of this led to the fact that she had brought the living faith into the country where she lived. And all of her people had accepted Judaism. We see the harvest of all of this that had occurred when Philip had come up to the chariot. It is written, Jerusalem. 
He had brought his tithes and offerings there. He had brought that which had to be in the home where there was food, where they received all of their faith. He was on the chariot and he read and Philip asked, do you know what you are reading? Ask this question to some person. Do you understand what you are reading? You will hear a short answer. Well, how do I understand if no one will explain it? He went up on the chariot and when he began to interpret the prophet Isaiah to him, I don't know how much time this was, and he then accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And the word of God says, The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Again, I return. All of that which we hear, this whole wisdom, is just like Christ had said, Father has sent me, therefore I send you, with that same mandate of powers, with this spectrum of wisdom, with these revelations. On the earth, there are those people that are those whom God has sent and those who have a great wisdom, that which we hear about and that which we are offered to be immersed in. We increase our measure of faith so that we can cooperate our faith with the faith of God or the obedience of our faith to the faith of God can occur. And in doing so, we fulfill our calling as warriors of prayer in the dignity of kings, priests, and prophets. And I'll remind you, the dignity of a king is comprised of our thing of our thinking that is renewed by the spirit of our mind, which gives us the right to power to rule over the emotional sphere of our body and to carry it under the bridle as a war horse. This isn't a wild Mustang. This is a military war horse that listens not from a hit or from a kick, but from the movement of the muscle of the rider, and he is submissive to him. The dignity of a priest gives us the right to power, to come to God in the dignity of a warrior of prayer, to conduct intercession for our body and the, for the righteous inter- intercession. What stands behind this word? The righteousness and the obligation. And the dignity of a prophet gives our new man the right to enter into the Holy of Holies in order to hear the voice of God under the lid of the golden ark in our heart. And he gives God the basis to listen to our intercession and to answer. When people say, well, how do you hear the voice of God? I think we know very well how we hear the voice of God, where he lives, what is his word, and when we hear his word that is passed along. To those whom he has empowered, we have a communication with God, and this occurs in our thoughts, this occurs in our thinking, this occurs in our obedience, this occurs in that which we submit to, the word of God. And the word that is presented to us will is taken is taken from the words of Apostle Arkadi. It is called the right to set aside our former way of life in order to be clothed in a new way of life. I will read, all of us know this place of scripture very well, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man 
which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And you know, oftentimes people say that holiness is one and truth is something different. But here it talks about the holiness of truth. This is one characteristic, holiness and of truth. In order to be clothed into this kind of person that is found in righteousness and holiness of truth. And for the fulfillment of this commandment, there are three basic commands and foundational verbs. These are set aside, renew, and clothe. You know, if this was very simple, then people would know how to set aside the former way of life of their old man, and they would have done this. Because many Christians suffer from their old man. They are tormented by him, and they themselves don't realize how to be rid of him. People despise themselves, they despise sin that lives in their old man. And in this suffering, they don't accept the fact that there exist people who can help in this. And without uncovering the meaning, this is just a slogan, you know, we lived in that country where everyone in their homes and commercials, everything was covered with slogans. There are different kinds of slogans that were of the Soviet Union. I think you remember a lot of these slogans. People just looked at this and they smiled at him. Or they didn't think about them at all. But how must this be done and how must we conduct it in a faithful way so that this isn't This particular saying does not include in what way and by what means it is necessary to use these verbs to set aside our former way of life and then to be renewed with the spirit of our mind and finally, how to begin the process of being clothed in our new man. Not my neighbor, not my spouse, but myself. Based on how we answer these three fateful questions will depend on whether or not we turn ourselves into vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. Or rather, will the salvation that was given to us in the format of a deposit be fulfilled or will we waste it forever? If we were to waste it, our names would be blotted out of the book of life forever. Although at one point, they were written in there. In a certain format, we have already studied the first two questions and have stopped to study the following one. What conditions are necessary to fulfill so that through our already renewed thinking, we could begin the process of being clothed in the powers of the new man created by God in Christ Jesus in righteousness and holiness of truth? We have noted that our new man that we must be clothed into is our inner or in most man that was born from the unfading seed of the Word of God, who by nature is righteous, holy, unfading, and undying. Although for a time being it is in the corrupt body, it is in the fourth dimension of the unseen and eternal realm. So, through this new man, we are called to save our soul, and thus we are called to bring to fulfillment God's intentions. 
In this manner, our new man carries the dimension of eternity in time. Therefore, it does not depend on time and in fact rules over time because it looks at the unseen, lives by the unseen, and strives toward the unseen. Thanks to this, it calls the inexistent in time inheritance of Christ as already existent. It calls it so because he sees it and he uses it. And he himself is the subject of the invisible inheritance. Pay attention to the fact uh, we don't see our new man, but we have him. He exists and he spreads his influence over us. We also have the old man that exists and that also can express his influence over us. But only our new man has a relationship with God. And only through him we have a relationship with God and thus enter into God's presence. This tells us of the fact that only through our renewed thinking we will be built up into the temple of God. Or rather, our new man will proclaim the treasure of faith that is written on the tablets of our heart in the subject of a pure, unfading, and undying inheritance. Therefore, the right to this is the right to rule over time. And this right is tied to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment, because for every matter there is a time and judgment. Though the misery of man increases greatly, for he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? We should note that the statute tells us what it is necessary to do, as well as what is necessary to not do. That's what the commandment does, and the statute tells us how to do it. Commandment is specific, a specific decree order. And when we study the statute, it is in detail how, where, why, for what reason. So it answers all of these broad questions. I remember when I had served in the army, there was a time which we called uh, a certain period where the captain had come, the night guard, but the night guard, before this, he had to, for two hours after 12, he had to learn this statute, and they had remembered it, and and he was told to go study, and he thought, why, I can tell you, he was told, no, you need to remember this. That was there, in ordinary conditions of political, we will say, army, army days. But here, this is important for each of us individually. From this depends our position in God. There are a few of those people who incline their ear to hear the person whom God has sent who will tell him this commandment and will give a definition of the time regarding the statute and how to do this. We try to do this independently, which we won't be able to. We are going to go against a general rule, and God works according to His rules and according to those laws that exist for us. So these laws are called the principles of the body, and the law outside of the body 
or the laws in the body comes through the head. Accepting the person of God, we agree with that which is accepted, which which is accepted by us. Imagine a person's hand can move in all directions. We will say, well, something's wrong with his hand because all the commands in our body, all of the commands of our movement, our how we take a cup, how we go to work, these are commands of the brain. According to this verse and other places of scripture, without ruling over time expressed in the knowledge of the statutes, it will be impossible to be clothed in garments of righteousness to fulfill the perfect justice of our Heavenly Father. And when examining the nature of the new man, we decided to look at the process of being clothed in the power of the new man from seven different angles and seven virtues, although many more exist. This is a man clothed in garments of salvation, a man dressed in clothes of justice, a man crowned in the crown of the bridegroom, a man decorated with the ornaments of a bride, a man dressed in a wedding garment, a man dressed in a fine linen clean and bright, a man who has accepted a representative force, Yahweh of hosts. When examining these virtues, we highlighted the fact that all of these virtues are located in one another, find themselves in one another, come from one another, support one another, and serve to ratify the truth of one another. In one of the places of scripture we found, we find four of them all together. Isaiah 61, 10 through 11. Let's read it together. O greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Here we have all the four virtues. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all his nations. So righteousness and praise are presented before all his nations. So these are garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness, the crown of a bridegroom, and the jewels of a bride. We have noted that the combination in one person of these virtues and regalia of power in one man, especially the combination of the crown of the bridegroom and jewels of the bride, the combination of the functions of the man and the woman, groom and bride, you know, this truly surpasses all capabilities of our understanding. But only thanks to divine revelation we know what functions a man has and what functions a woman has. And in one person who does not have gender, because in Christ Jesus, what's interesting, in Christ Jesus, all of those who say, why do women preach in your church? And we read, in Christ Jesus there is no male nor female gender. And therefore, all of those who ask the question, they are not in Christ Jesus. The answer is very simple. If a person is going to be found in Christ Jesus, this disappears. God has created man and woman according to him, his image. In their creation, he was called, he called them man, mankind. And Brother Akadi had explained that God has the function and character and the property of both man and a female simultaneously. God 
is not a man and God is not a female, but God expresses himself in both male and female. Where there is found the virtue of God that is simultaneously contained in one field and the other field, and also in their relations between one another and in their purpose. Second, in this prophetic saying, there are virtues that are grown by God. Yet yeah, well, when we say grown by God, we must remember the fact that I planted another water, but God has grown. Therefore, grown by God in the heart of a person, the same way the earth grows its plants and a garden grows what is sown in it. So if the earth is prepared for accepting the seed, their joy in the Lord in this prophecy is one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit that is called to define the kingdom of heaven in the pure heart of man. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this kind of fruit of joy in the heart of a person is the result of harvest that yielded the kingdom of heaven in his heart, ascending in power, which was previously in the sowing of an unfading seed that was planted in tears in the heart of this man. There is a difference between the kingdom of heaven that we receive in the seed and the one that grows in the fruit, that becomes such a fruit in which could be contained birds in the image of the revelations of God. Those revelations that we have, we must understand that they live in that tree. That was sown in tears. As it is written in Psalms 126, 5 through 6, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Not others, but his own sheaves with him. A pastor had revealed why does sowing happen with tears. Because God's promises that are clothed in the heart of a person, they are sown in tears. When the seed dies, then these are tears. Because sowing is always tied to death, the death of the seed. And when these promises die, you know, there was a time when I had received these promises in the format of a seed, I had to understand them at that time, but when I received them and I heard the word that they would need to be sown and they would die, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want me to lose that which I had gained. I would rejoice that I found them and that which I had gained was valuable. And then I heard the word, they must die in you. But this was that time right now. It all is working differently, but we must know that in order to be clothed into the death of the Lord Jesus, it's to receive a new breath in the resurrection. This will be expressed itself, that will express itself in the fruit. And if there is no death of this seed, there will never be fruit. This is just like we see with all the seeds on earth, but this also occurs with the Word of God, which we accept. We also must observe how we accept it, how we must prepare heart, how we must hear this word, how must my relationship be toward this word. And if, if it is this way, why is it that way? And if it is that way, why is it that way? We must find all of these questions and uh, answers within ourselves. And so... Uh, being clothed into the new man is being clothed in the resurrection of Christ and the subject of the fruit of the Spirit that we have offered God that is called to yield in our heart the power and the order grown in us and dwelling in us. 
the power and order of the kingdom of heaven and righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In a certain format, we have already examined the core that is in the garments of salvation that have, and have stopped to examine the robes of righteousness, specifically the size of the price that is necessary to pay for the right to be clothed in a robe of righteousness or into robes of justice to conduct the judgments of God to fulfill God's justice because God's justice is found in his righteousness. When Solomon rose as king and when we read that is written there in his dreams, the Lord came to him and said, what do you want? And he, he had made his request known that he asked not for glory, not for riches, but asked for wisdom to quickly judge the people. And the Lord says, I will give all to you. And the other verse we read, and two harlots came to him. You might think that at that time, the kingdom of Israel was in such an era after the rise of King Solomon. There were two kings simultaneously, King David and King Solomon. And they are, and how did he discern? It is written in the end. And the people feared according to judgment how man judges how we judge who we have the right to judge who we don't have the right to judge and to whom judgment belongs and in the future we are going to judge this there will be half a million people coming the queen of the south will come from Ethiopia and many saints and they are going to fulfill God's righteousness. This is going to be the justice of God, where God will show through His saints His justice, and they will judge. We remember this in Scripture. We are clothed in the powers of the judgments of God. We have already studied six conditions, and have stopped to study the seventh one. And so, the seventh condition, it is the price for the right to be clothed in a robe of righteousness, to fulfill the justice of God, this is being clothed in the redemption that is due to being observant of the Lord's Pesach according to the statute set by God. Observance of Pesach is the observance of God's justice. Some people say, uh, don't judge, I always think, interesting. What color judges are? It's just an image. All of this, there is an essence in this. John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We are referring to the teaching that is contained in the truth of the blood of the Lord and the truth of the cross of Christ. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And remember, in Corinthians chapter 11, if you were to judge yourselves, you would not be judged by the world. Remember where we must, how we must begin. Not pointing at somewhere, 
but we must judge ourselves first. In other words, if we don't know what is contained in the teaching of the cross of Christ and teaching of the blood of Christ, we will never be able to worthily partake of the basic and to fulfill the justice of God, first and foremost for ourselves. The main purpose and the worthy eating of the Pesach is comprised of the knowledge through instruction and faith. Our work of the teaching contained in the truth of the blood of Christ and in the truth of the cross of Christ, revealing for us a path to inheritance in the blood of Christ. If a person through instruction and faith will not be taught these two fundamental truths that are the root system of the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, then he will not have the opportunity to worthy partake to the feast of the Lord. When studying the components of the name of God as our living shield, this is what we heard not too long ago, who takes upon himself the deadly blow directed against us by our enemies, it will discover itself in the truth that is contained in the blood of the cross of Christ. These definitions were presented to us in the study of the living of name of God's shield, that these components can give God the basis to be our living shield, taking upon himself the blow that is directed against us by our enemies. It is necessary, through the fulfillment of the conditions established by God, to cooperate our life with the life of Jesus, presented in his blood that was spilled on the cross. If a person does not have knowledge that he could receive through submission to the preached word of truth on what conditions it is necessary for him to cooperate his life with the life of Christ that was spilled on the cross, then the path to the imperishable treasures that are contained in the blood of Christ and spilled on the cross will be closed to him or inaccessible. And this means that God will not have any basis to make this kind of a person the blood a living shield through the blood of His Son, the living shield that can take upon itself the blow by the enemies living in His bodies and the enemies living outside of His body. Imperishable and unsearchable inheritance on its own that is contained in the blood of Christ spilled on the cross is found in the treasury of the body of Christ, which is the Church of Jesus Christ, in the face of God's chosen remnant. We have noted that each detail of the yearly celebration of Pesach, presented in the taking of the Lord's Supper, points to final freedom from the bondage of sin and death in the body while we live, and in the future, final freedom from the fading body and deadly soul, which thanks to worthy partaking of the Pesach lamb in time, will be clothed in imperishability and immortality. In the Pesach statute, worthy partaking of the Pesach lamb consisted of meeting the conditions of certain kinds of clothing that carry the readiness to fulfill God's justice and certain kinds of conditions necessary for worthy partaking of the Pesach lamb. Non-compliance to these conditions in any of their aspects did not free man from execution of the sentence of death. And likewise, complying to the statutes of the Pesach made a person a partaker to the production of God's judgment over the firstborn of Egypt. Exodus 12.12 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. We know that the Egypt had worshipped Pharaoh, who for them was a deity. They also worshipped their firstborns. They worshipped all the beasts, all the crawling things, frogs, snakes. They worshipped them as their gods. They were ingrained in their metal and their gold. According to these regulations, we know that the firstborn of Egypt that Egyptians so heavily relied on were the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh himself, oh, what he was wearing was in the form of a cobra, what he was wearing. And so Pharaoh was also called a great, a great, the great crocodile. But our dependence on something and on someone defines our deity, our trust, and our worship. Because what we depend on, that is our deity and our worship. And therefore, if we know this and we de- do not depend fully on the Lord, if we know this but don't depend on the Lord, then we must challenge these kinds of things that we depend on so that we can depend on the Lord. And so the firstborn of Egypt represented an image of the soul of a person who declined to lose his soul in the death of the Lord Jesus so that he could die to his nation, his household, and his personal carnal desires and preferences that went against the desires of God. And so if we do not fulfill God's justice by condemning our soul to death in the worthy partaking of the Lord's Pasik, according to the statutes set in place by God, we will never be a part of the descendants of Abraham's faith. Made by God as the father of all the living, When they said, we are children of Abraham, if you were children of Abraham, you would have done the works that Abraham had done. But we are the the children of Abraham according to faith. And so we will also never be able to be clothed in the robe of righteousness in the face of our new and inner man. Abraham, who was set by God as a standard of faith, accepted the promise of God in the seed of the preached word, and he began calling the inexistent as existent, and in this manner grew the seed into fruit of joy in the face of the one whom he bore, Isaac. The name Isaac means joy, gladness, laughter. The feast of the Pesach and leather garments that God had made for the redemption of the first Adam, even before the creation of the earth, was intended by God to be the blessed fate of all those who believe. This is a large stumbling block for lots of people. Specifically, we will see what. We are talking about how there exists a teaching that tells us that some are predestined for salvation, and others are not. Those that are predestined if a person is predestined for perdition, he will head to perdition because a man is defined. Consider that this is God's definition. However, we know well that God does not appoint someone to salvation or perdition. People themselves willingly, with their choice, with their decision, with their sanctification, with their uh, ignorance sometimes, choose their fate. 
either perdition or salvation. And God, looking at the voluntary choice of a person, and Scripture says that whom He has predestined, He, whom He has foreknew, He has predestined to be in the image and likeness of His Son. Foreknew His action, what He would choose. From the very beginning, He knew what we would choose. This means that He has foreknown us, not predestined us, but foreknown us. And because He has foreknown us, then he has predestined to be in the image and the likeness of his son. Those whom he has selected, he has glorified, and so forth. Everything begins from foreknowledge. This characteristic belongs to the omnipotent and almighty God. He knows in advance how a person acts when he will hear the news about the gospel, is he going to miss it? Or is this seed going to find a, a, a place to nest in him? Another will go unburied in the ground or will place into circulation. There are very many people who left us having heard this truth. If What if I have a promotion? What if I do this? What if I do that? And where are they? Where are these people? What was their essence like? This is tied to the loss of people close to us. When truth is truly accepted by us, we lose the fear of losing those who rise up against it. And when we have lost someone, then there is no feeling of, 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 of we must understand this, all of those who had come to Baal of Peor, come to me and you will be immersed in the blood of your brothers because worthy parting of Pesach gives God the ability to execute judgment over his ancestral promises including the fulfillment of his judgment over his enemies, the unclean, the world abject poverty and all kinds of sicknesses and disease that plague his chosen remnants and the feast of the Pesach in leather garments that God has made for the redemption of the first Adam, even before the creation of the earth, was intended by God to be the blessed fate of all those who believe. And we needed to fulfill ten conditions or to abide in these ten conditions. I will remind you, this is the choice and the separation of the Pesach lamb to remove all leaven from our home, to sprinkle the blood of the Pesach lamb over the beams and doorposts, to bake the whole Pesach lamb over fire, to gird yourself with a belt. This is the renewal of our thinking, to put shoes on our feet, contain a staff in our hand. This is a soul that has been lost but returned, to eat the whole lamb, so to not choose some kinds of truths. I like this, I like that. But this I don't like. This isn't so. We must eat the Pesach lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, meaning accept sufferings as a privilege, and to eat the Pesach lamb in haste. And so uh, Dimitri had started this topic from the very first component, but given that I did not start from the beginning for me 
for me, I wanted to start at the psalm. If whatever sermon that we take, it is going to be intertwined with other thoughts of other sermons and other components. Therefore, if we take it individually, I didn't take this. I started from this 10th moment. Exodus 12, 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The element of haste when eating the Pesach was so important that it is mentioned in Scripture numerous times as an unchanging law. It is this particular element that was involved in the exodus out of Egypt, and this particular element was elevated to rank of special signs that could serve as a circumcision of our heart and our ear. Uh, Deuteronomy 16.3 You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it, that is, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. Circumcision is always a form of um, poverty for every person, both male and genders, male and female genders. We know that this is for all of us. Just like Noah and his family, they had a certain suffering and trial when the ark was covered with waves. This ark, when it's painted in images, it's right on top of the water. Imagine iceberg. How can we define it? And scientists said that this is a dimension. How much do we see him rise above the water? Seven times more than that he is underneath the water. And it is... That ark that he had built was almost underneath the water. The water was all around Noah's ark. The ark wasn't just on top of the waves. Just like Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights inside the whale and the Son of Man in the heart of the earth. In order to be to be in the whale and to be in the ark, it's one of the same thing, just images from different uh, angles, to be found in the death of Christ. We wait, we are immersed in the death of Christ, and then comes resurrection. God commands the whale to throw Jonah out, which he's resurrected like Christ. And pastor said that Jonah had died. This was resurrection for him. And Noah was resurrection when he came out of the ark. For him, this was also an image of death. And when he exited the ark, then for him, this was also resurrection. And all of this is called in haste. As Pastor characterized this definition, that you remember the day of your exodus out of Egypt for all the days of your life. So that death in which we are found in, it is going to make us in such a way that we are going to continually remember this. We're going to be reminded of what had happened. Haste, aside from its literal meaning and the dimension of time, means hurry, rush, stopulate. In Hebrew, in the dimension of the Spirit, it contains a completely different meaning. Specifically, to haste is to take on the yoke, of course, the yoke of Christ, to carry 
your cross, to endure suffering as the good warrior of Christ, to be clothed in the mantle or in the robe of a student, to be clothed in weapons of light and the powers of the doctrine of Christ, or strengthened with all power according to the might of God's glory, to renew our thinking. It's a very important aspect, to renew our thinking, to meditate on the supreme law, to listen to the words of God with fear and trembling, to stand guard, not damaging the word of God. Considering that eating Pesach is a guarantee of the new law, which is symbolically made in the number eight. So containing these, looking at these meanings, we decided to look at eight signs that contain the meaning of haste. And Pastor says there are many more that exist. In a certain format, we have already examined six signs that define haste and worthy partaking of the Pesach lamb. We have stopped to examine the seventh sign of eating in haste. And this is seventh sign. To eat the Lord's Pesach in haste in Hebrew means to be strengthened with all power according to the might of God's glory with all patience, generosity, and joy. Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Colossians 1.11 We have noted that in Scripture, God's power that we are called to be strengthened by eating the Lord's Pesach in haste Eating are due to the innumerable possibilities of God are contained in a variety of His works that demonstrate the power and glory of God. And so strength in Hebrew is power, strength, might, right, authority, rule, sign, covenant, shine, designation, the attributes of royal power, the whole armor of God, the host of heaven, elements of the universe, many graces graces and bounties of God, many of God's greatness and grandeur, many innumerable and immeasurable powers of God, a lot of power and fortresses, the ability and opportunity to justice and righteousness, the ability to spread and expand miracles and wonders. We have noted that only when we find specific strengths of God operating in us and through us, we will be able to testify that we are eating the Lord's Pesach in haste, which gives us the opportunity to withstand the ambitions of our personal Egypt. And so, to be strengthened by all power according to the might of His strength, it is necessary to fulfill one condition, to be in patience and long-suffering with joy. However, for this goal, it is necessary it was necessary for us to study what we should view as under every power of God that is contained in the power of His glory. So, if we don't define how we, how can we cooperate with these powers if we don't know what kind of power and strength this is. And only then can we examine how do we abide in all patience and long-suffering with joy so we could strengthen ourselves with these manifold powers of God. Looking at the first question, what is to be understood under the powers of God contained in the power of His glory? We came to the conclusion that the multifunctional powers of God are defined by the immeasurable and innumerable manifold works of God that are shown in the works of God. And so if we are studying the manifold works of God because uh, the immeasurable manifold, innumerable, how will I be able to understand this? And all of a sudden, Pastor later on says, immeasurable and innumerable manifold works of God. Through this, we can view them. Say to God, how awesome are your works? 
through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. Psalm 66, 3. Let's remember who is our main enemy. Of course, this is our soul that is tied to its nation, its household, and its genetic inclinations that are under the multitude powers of hell. You've noticed what kind of spiritual maturity we, we come toward. You do this, you come out, repent. You do this, you come out, you repent. You lied, you come out, repent. You do some other kind of sin. But now, I catch myself at this thought, Lord, forgive me for this thought, or on the contrary. I remember when I had studied, not English, but um, but the but Deutsch, I was told, look at how to correctly phrase a sentence, to be very attentive to what I am listening and how I am listening. These thoughts, they must not find, I can't satisfy myself like Calvin said, or not Calvin, uh, about the one who had, Martin Luther, who talked about um, placing a nest above the head for the birds. I must not have these birds, these evil thoughts. If I, pastor had said before, they don't come to me anymore and I caught myself, well then how come I still get them? How come these arrows reach me? Why these, do these arrows of the Midianites come toward me? And again, I received an answer with a sermon you remember. You did not build a cave of Adalim, did not rise up higher than these arrows, did not sanctify yourself in something or dedicate, and you continue to sin in your thoughts. And I begin to understand, well, how are, how are, what are the state of my thoughts like? We begin to, we've begun to judge ourselves from in a different way, from a different level. And so the true works of God done through the greatness of His power inspire fear and awe before God. And each individual person is called to behold in his life these results when he eats the Lord's pasic in haste. And so in this manner, in the manifold and multifunctional powers of God, containing the power of God is revealed a great deed of God's redemption, showing us who God is for us and what He has done for us. And the question, how can we be strengthened by the great powers of God, reveals for us what we must do to inherit all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. In a certain format, we have already examined several definitions that yield the nature and character of specific powers of God produced in His people and through His people. We have stopped at the next power of God that is called to be expressed in the heart and through the heart of a person who has been redeemed by God in the multitude of mercies and bounties of God. So we have begun to look at the mercy of God and the bountiful mercies in, of God. And this is the next component. Psalms 5, 4 through 8. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Through these multiple powers of God expressed in the multitude of His mercies to enter into the house of God, it is necessary for our heart to gain the right not only to rule and work with these powers, but the right to be in these powers.
it says you will accept power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and in this power of the Holy Spirit is found the multitude powers of God that is presented in the multitude of mercies of God with which each of us must cooperate in order to cooperate it is necessary for us to define them to learn them and this right to rule over and be in the powers of God is the fear of the Lord that is called to use and maintain those powers to blot out our iniquities before the face of God And so Psalms 51 verses 3 through 14, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous Spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Recognize your iniquity before God is an important step. However, for God to blot out our iniquity, recognizing our iniquity before God by itself is not enough. Because for the blotting out of our iniquities, we must cooperate with the multiple powers of God in the subject of His mercies, contained in the inheritance of the blood of the cross of Christ. This unique cooperation with the multitude of God's mercies, expressed in the innumerable bounties, created a prayer that defines the haste needed to eat of the Pesach lamb. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. The thing is, is that only after the blotting out of our transgressions, through our cooperation with the multitude of the Lord's tender mercies, we will be made worthy of God and will receive the right to enter before the face of the Lord to ratify His interest in His perfect justice. To practice God's perfect justice, it is necessary for mercy and truth to bind our necks so that these virtues could be written on the tablets of our heart. Proverbs 3, verses 3 through 4, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. We have noted that under the image of our neck that we are called to bind to mercy and truth is our cooperation with the sovereign and perfect will of God. In practice, this means to submit our will to the perfect will of God aforementioned in Scripture. Whereas engraving mercy and truth on the tablets of our hearts is the cooperation of our wise and reasonable heart with the wisdom and mind of God. 
which in practice means what we read, to prepare the soul of our heart to accept the seed of the preached word of the kingdom of heaven. Not half an hour before church, not two hours before church, but to be ready at any time. I remember old times, about 30 years ago, to the breaking of bread, uh, Saturday evenings were used to prepare when I had heard the first truth, when we had come to church and when pastor had preached, and he had explained that we must be prepared at any time. How do we be prepared? How do we be prepared? Once a month. And as a result, I understood that my the state of my heart and my new man will define the state of my readiness. The state of me being able to worthily partake of the Pesach lamp. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, not the foolish, but the gifted artisans, the wise, that they may make all that I have commanded you. Exodus 31, 6. So only the heart of the wise will be given the seed of God so that a person could receive what he needs to do in order to build himself a spiritual dwelling. And so the teaching about mercy expressed in God's redemption that we are called to bind around our neck can manifest itself only under the strict boundaries of the legal framework of truth yielded by the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. We remember that uh, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Instead of some kind of created pseudo-religious images, as well as waste from our intellect, which has no right or the ability to comprehend mercy and truth in the transcendent word of God. And so for God to be able to reach out his golden scepter towards us in the subject of his favor, thanks to which we receive the right to ratify his justice over the just and the unjust, the virtues of mercy and truth are supposed to not only become the possession of our hearts, but also its state. That serves as a definition of the kingdom of heaven, the mercy of God. This power of the mercies of God can manifest itself when in our heart there is truth and righteousness. In relation to this, we have once again decided to refresh our memories with these questions. What character does Scripture put in the properties of God's mercies, which are an expression of His great power, defining God's favor toward man in the image of His golden scepter? What purpose in our worship is called to fulfill the great powers of God in the subject of God's mercies? What price must we pay so that the multitude of God's mercies become our property and our state? And according to which result should we judge that God truly stretched out to us the multitude of His mercies in the image of His golden scepter that granted us His great powers? And so, when examining the first question, what character does Scripture put in the properties of God's mercies, which are an expression of His great power, we came to the conclusion that God's mercy, as it is, is one of the main names of God, as well as one of His character titles. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Second, the Lord's mercy is God's inheritance that is passed on solely to His children 
as the inheritors of Abraham's faith, or the heirs of Abraham's faith, from one righteous kind to another righteous kind, from the Father to the Son. Third, the Lord's mercy, according to its status, is lifted up over life in the flesh because it is better than life in the flesh. Fourth, the Lord's mercy is one of the diverse manifestations of the goodness of God expressed in His grace which has reigned in the heart of a person. The righteousness that a person has accepted as a gift of grace in the redemption of Christ Jesus. In fifth, the Lord's mercy contained in God's goodness is one of the definitions and manifestations of God's truth that has been designed for the vessels of mercy that walk in the legal framework of truth. Psalms 89.1 I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. Not just I have heard, but I have agreed, rejoiced, repeat, ponder upon them. The Word of God says that I must declare it with my mouth, with my lips. The saying is unique in that man who sings of the Lord's mercies or who praises the Lord's mercies contained in his goodness receives the opportunity to trumpet these mercies in the limits of God's truth which points to the fact that a person who trumpets mercies and praises them as truth in the boundaries of the legal framework of truth is in God's goodness and thus protects himself from falling away. Romans 11.22 Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So in this case, the goodness of God is a demonstration of mercy and truth that covers those people who have bound their necks to mercy and truth in the boundaries of the legal framework of truth. Whereas the strictness or the severity of God is a demonstration of God's justice and righteousness that spreads over those people that have refused to bind their necks to mercy and truth. Scripture calls these people stiff this difficult word stiff a stiff neck a neck that is disagreeable they want to use mercy outside of the legal frameworks of truth and this is impossible righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne mercy and truth go before your face Psalms 89:14. go before your face meaning they go before, they go first, in the beginning, they're in the front. The phrase mercy and truth go before your face means that mercy and truth precede the righteousness and justice of God or are justification from man which allow God to not punish a man for his crimes. What if it was on the contrary? Death. If we do not prepare our hearts to hear the preached word in the legal framework of truth, we will not have the ability to turn God's favor upon us. Romans 10, 16-17 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This means that not all accepted and listened to the words of people whom the Lord has sent. In order to explain what is mercy, what is the power of God, and how they can work within the legal framework of truth.
Therefore, the means for accepting this kind of help expressed in the inheritance of God's mercies is prayer or worship, because prayer is simply the right that man gives the heavens to interfere here on earth. A person can give the right because it is that which he is called to do, to give the right. So he must agree with this. He must himself desire for this. In this right, we are called to give God only on his established conditions and to not dictate our conditions to God. So one of David's prayers written in the 143rd Psalm where he gives God the right to interfere in his life with his mercy and truth will be for us an example of our inheritance. This is Psalms 143, verses 1-12. through 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications, and your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness, like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me, my heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of the old, I meditate on all your works, I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you, my soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake, for your righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. For I am your servant, it says. And to be heard by God, it was necessary for David to present God a foundation or a right that could serve for God as proof that he could interfere in David's life with his mercy and his truth. From David's perspective, this kind of proof in this prayer contained 10 different arguments or 10 foundations that David brought to God saying, hear me, these fundamental truths that were there for God to hear him. So let's list them individually. Hear me because of your righteousness and truth, because I remember the days of the old and all your works, because I spread out my hands to you. Hear me because I trust in you. Hear me because I lift my soul up to you. Hear me for I run to you. Hear me because you are my God. Hear me for your name. Hear me for your mercy and hear me because I am your servant. We have stopped to study the first moment that gave God the legal right to stand on David's behalf and his resistance with these enemies. This is evidence of God's truth and righteousness in the heart that are in the limits of the legal framework for God's work of redemption expressed in the multitude of His mercies.
And for this purpose, we needed to examine what was the foundation for David of such a bold statement and assertion brought before God as evidence that he is in the limits of truth and righteousness. How was he able to gain this kind of virtue in this kind of state? Or what price and what conditions must be fulfilled on our end to have these vital foundations? To answer these questions and in this manner receive the opportunity to take off our sinful nature that is in the reins of personified sin and personified death and in this manner to be clothed in our new man we will need to examine these questions. So we need to define truth and righteousness in our heart. What is contained in the price of being in truth and righteousness? How do we keep ourselves in truth and righteousness? And what results will be yielded from knowing truth and righteousness? In the boundaries of which we could turn God's goodness on us and His mercy, or the boundaries in which we could work with the manifold powers of God reflected in His mercies. In a certain format, we have already looked at the first three questions and have come to this conclusion that truth and righteousness should not be viewed as identical, although they resemble one another, just like a daughter resembles her mother and a son resembles his father. Because in Scripture, righteousness comes from truth. In other words, truth reproduces itself in righteousness just as a father reproduces himself in his son and just as a seed reproduces itself in fruit. From this, truth is the root that defines the state of a person's heart. Whereas righteousness is a truth that is grown from this root and is a manifestation of the state. So what will grow? Because we were born from the seed of the word of truth, and then from this word of truth, from the state grows the righteousness of God. Based on this, righteousness is truth in action or result of the action of truth in our heart. And so, to practice judgment and righteousness, it is necessary to have a kind of truth in our heart that would project the state of our heart. And so, the fourth question, according to which results can we define that we are contained in the legal boundaries of truth and righteousness? The result of being in the legal boundaries of truth and righteousness in our heart, by which we could define that we truly contain such a nature that correlates to the nature of God and is not a forgery, will be the manifestation of the multitude powers of God in His multitude of mercies. In a certain format, we have already studied six signs of mercy that are evidence that we are in the boundaries of legal framework of truth and righteousness. The seventh sign that we are contained in boundaries of legal framework of truth and righteousness will be God's mercy given to us in the witness of the morning star, which will guarantee that we will meet with the Lord in the air. This mercy that we are going to have in our heart, it is going to be evidence that in our heart, we have the legal boundaries and the legal framework of truth and righteousness where we can have the witness of the morning star. Revelation 2, 26-28 And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And so in this saying, the presence of the morning star in the heart should be checked by the ability to tend to the uncircumcised thoughts with a rod of iron and break them like the potter's vessels. This is the principle that I had heard that for me, it became so plentiful and abundant to me and so specific. Because to distinguish the uncircumcised thoughts from the uncircumcised, it is necessary to observe the works of God to the end. In other words, to keep our thoughts in unity with the person whom God has placed over us. And for this purpose, it is necessary to overthrow our independent thinking and capture it with God's revelation that is sent to us through the thinking of the messenger of God. Because the Holy Spirit offers us this thought through the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 4. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest, till her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hevzebah and your land, Bula, for the Lord delights in you, and the land and your land shall be married. And so the rise of the morning star in the heart is presented in the rise of the light of truth, or burning lamp, that is called, that certain nations and kings are called to see, nations and kings that will call us by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. A new name, is a place of virtue located on the right-hand side of the Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus. And this uh, idea the Holy Spirit offers us through the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 9-21. through 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This means that people without the people that are sent by the messengers of God will never be able to inter interpret scripture. I would like to focus our attention on three conditions or three lines that are connected to one another, the fulfillment of which we can define in our heart as the morning star ascended in the sky of our heart. The first line, it's our correct relationship toward the sure word of the prophecy, which is scripture in the subject of the image of the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms. The second is that the prophetic word was never pronounceable by the will of man, but the saints of God's people did pronounce it while being led by the Holy Spirit. And the third, it's the morning star, 
as the revelation and guarantee of our meeting with Christ in the air cannot ascend in our heart until day begins to dawn in our heart. And you know, I think I will end at this thought, but before our prayer, I will provide this kind of summary. We're going to continue to fulfill the function of our new man by proclaiming the faith of our heart written on the tablets of our heart in the subject of an imperishable inheritance. We will We will watch over our building in the image of God. We will understand the main essence of worldly partaking. Pesach will be strengthened in the might and glory of God and all patience and long-suffering and joy. We are going to be immersed in the teaching of mercy that is expressed in the redemption of God that we are calling to bind our neck by. We are going to define the truth and righteousness that is contained in our heart and its purpose, as well as keep our heart in truth and righteousness, as well as the result or the signs that we have in our heart, truth, and righteousness. Amen. Let us pray and thank the Heavenly Father for that word that was given to our spiritual father, Arkady. So may you be blessed in your prayers. We can bend our knees before the Lord or bow our heads. Heavenly Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in thanksgiving, we have bowed down to this holy place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this holy place which you look down upon us from. We overcome and we thank you for the new man who is the image and likeness of you. We thank you for this word with which which cleanses us from all sin, all kinds of evil thoughts. I thank you, Lord, for this. May the Lord rise in all spheres of our life. I thank you that you have delivered each of us from the vain life of our fathers, from the law of sin and death, from all kinds of dependencies, from curse. You have delivered, Lord, delivered and freed our thinking so that it, our thinking could be in use, so that on the tablets of our heart could be written the words of the statutes through which we can fulfill your will, your will, through which we can be perfected. For in Christ Jesus, you have made us the God of strength, firmness, rock of our salvation, stronghold. We will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and we will be saved from our enemies. We thank you for this widow, which we have been clothed in. We uh, leave our old man. We have given him a divorce letter and we proclaim that our Lord lives. We shall not 
be broken down. We enter into a different dimension, a dimension where no one will be able to turn us away from your word, which we can be clothed in. I thank you for that teaching that edifies, that instructs our new man. I thank you for those prayer words that we are able to gather, that we are able to have a feast that we are found on. We are found on that feast which many saints had dreamt of being at. We thank you for this, and we bow down before you. We thank you for the calling to be clothed in the dignity of your warriors of prayer, kings, priests, prophets. I thank you that we are able to eat the body of your son and drink his blood in the dignity of that which the raven had brought to your prophet and to drink from the brook of Cherith until it dries up. For you have placed oil upon our heads and our cup is filled. I thank you, Lord, for that word that has separated us from all that is carnal and all the treasures you have contained in this word for each of us individually. For we hate the words of man, but we love your law. And we bow down before you, our all-loving God, our loving God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the hand of the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty dominion and power both now and forever Amen